ora. I'm Laura Clark, the British High Commissioner to New Zealand. Welcome to another episode of Tea with the High Commission, the British High Commission's podcast, where we interview a range of interesting people talking about anything and everything, and in the process discover the great connections between the UK and New Zealand. My guest today on Tea with the British High Commission is James Shaw, Minister for Climate Change. Uh, Now, James is Wellington born and raised and has been a member of the Green Party since 1990. He lived in London for 12 years, working with multinationals and developing their sustainable business practices before moving to Wellington in 2010. He elected a Green Party MP in 2014, became co-leader for the Green Party in 2015, and then led the Greens into a confidence and supply arrangement with the Labour-led coalition government in 2017. He is Minister for Climate Change, for Statistics, and also Associate Minister of Finance. And he's also a friend of mine, and so I have the insider information that all his in-laws call him Jack, because there were already too many Jameses in the family. So, Minister James Jack, welcome, and thanks for joining us on Tea with the High Commission. Thank you for having me to tea. <laughs> uh, so, I want to start, because we often try and explore UK-New Zealand links on this podcast, it'd be nice to start with the time that you spent in the UK. So 12 years is a long time, but you managed not to get stuck. Yeah, I I mean, uh, London's the kind of place where you wake up one day and go, oh my God, it's been 12 years. Uh, So when I first went over, I I guess like a lot of people, I I wasn't actually anticipating staying there that long. Uh, But, you know, my career really took off and, you know, um, kind of one thing led to another and then I became a citizen, you know. So I don't think that I was ever intending to make it a permanent home. But I also, it, it was actually a reasonably late decision while I was there to move back here rather than to move on to somewhere else. And what was it that then sort of tipped the balance and made, and made you decide to come back to Wellington? Um, because I wanted to run for Parliament. Yeah. Um, well, I, that was the primary reason. Uh, and so, well, you kind of got to be here to do that. Um, although, funny story, I did actually run in the 2008 general election in New Zealand, but I was still living in London at the time. So I was our kind of foreign correspondent candidate. Yeah, getting the OE votes. That's right, yeah, yeah. And actually, and we got enough votes on the international uh, international votes to get Kennedy Graham elected to Parliament. Ah, so uh, he was there partly thanks to your your work. Well, I, I like to tell him that it was entirely thanks yes. to my work, um, but uh, yes. And so that was a decision, because you were working in management consulting, that was then a decision that you felt you could make a bigger contribution to the world through politics. Yes. So I, you know, I was doing work in and around and related to climate change. And I kind of felt like a lot of the stuff that we were doing in the private sector was really good. But any given company wasn't gonna, you know, solve the problem. And so there are some things if you really want to tackle with climate, tackle climate change, some things can only happen as a result of political change. Um, and so that was really the decision point was saying, okay, well, I, I, I feel like in order to you know, make the greatest difference I can to this problem. I have to apply myself to the area where I think is going to make the, the greatest, yeah. where you, we have the greatest leverage. And it's been an amazing trajectory then since you came, you came back to New Zealand, uh, entered Parliament in 2014, and three years later, you're Minister for Climate Change. Uh, that's quite an impressive trajectory. Lots of people spend years on the back benches before that happens. Yeah, I... So part of that's a product of timing, um, and... Um, I think I'm probably as astonished as any of anybody else, including my mum. So tell me about the Zero Carbon Act. 
Because you talk about how you, you need to work through governments, you need to work through legislation to make this far-reaching change. Tell me about the Zero Carbon Act and how it fits into the big picture and what, and what New Zealand is trying to achieve. Well, it's, so the Zero Carbon Act is, is directly modelled on the United Kingdom's Climate Change Act, which you've had for 10 years. I think you literally just celebrated the 10th anniversary of that fairly recently. There was a, a growing civil society movement and some movement in Parliament and our former Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment and our Productivity Commission. Everybody was saying we need a piece of overarching legislation that does roughly what the UK Climate Act does. Uh, so it, it primarily does um, uh, four things. Its purpose is for New Zealand to act consistently with holding global temperatures to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. And I'm really pleased about that being in the purpose of the Act because um, A, we're one of the first countries, if not the first country in the world, to put the temperature goal into primary legislation at that level of the purpose. And therefore, everything that actually happens subsequently has to align with that purpose. So that's significant. Uh, derived from that, it has an emissions reduction target. Um, ours is a, a split gas target with... Um, biogenic methane, which is essentially animals and waste uh, methane, um, there's a reduction target for that. But then for all other gases, which are basically longer-lived gases than methane, um, net zero by 2050. Uh, and then the uh, next thing that the um, Act does is it establishes an independent climate change commission, very similar to the UK Climate Change Commission, which uh, helps to guide our pathway there and provide advice to the government on emissions budgets, um, five yearly emissions budgets. Uh, and then the final uh, section of the bill is around adaptation, and it sets up a requirement, a sort of a challenge response, where the uh, commission develops and then updates every six years a uh, nationwide risk assessment, and then the government has to respond with a adaptation plan. And so there's a sort of a basically ensuring that we have a, you know, a constantly evolving yeah. risk-based approach yeah. to how we adapt to the effects of climate change. That's a really neat model. So in, your, in, a, in, one, in one piece of legislation, you're essentially making sure New Zealand is meeting its Paris commitments. That's it's right. playing its part on the global stage and tackling climate change. And then you're also re-gearing how the economy works as well to meet those commitments. And you've then got that capacity to flex as you go on that's and right. adapt and also increase ambition. Yeah, that's right. If it turns out that that's what's needed. Yeah, well, when it, when it turns out yeah. that that's what's needed. Yeah. yeah. So tell me, from a New Zealand perspective, you know, I, I met a climate change denier the other night. You meet them less and less now. But from a, from a New Zealand perspective, why is it quite so um, urgent now that we, we, we take this action? Well, uh, New Zealand has been one of the countries that, whilst we have, you know, made some commitments around targets, we actually haven't done a very good job of bending the curve on our domestic emissions. So our emissions are... Um, sort of roughly 25-26% higher than they were in 1990. You compare that to the United Kingdom where it's about 41-42% lower than where they yeah. were in 1990. So, uh, so actually since you know that very first uh, commitment to reduce emissions was put in place, ours have gone up rather than down. Um, and so the window uh, for us to bend that curve is closing rapidly. Um, and also, of course, we've got much better information now than we did a few years ago, uh, that suggests that things are moving even more rapidly than we thought. So uh, we, you know, we—it's just something that we've got to get on top of. And what are the hardest things do you think to tackle in terms of New Zealand's emissions? The hardest thing for us 
has always been and is how we handle agricultural emissions. Um, you know, farming, uh, particularly of uh, cows and sheep, has been, you know, since we were a colonial country, the mainstay of our economy. Um, it, uh, it vies with tourism for, um, for you know, uh, international revenue. Um, and, and the problem is it's a, it's a highly disaggregated business, right? You've got 26 or so thousand farms around the country. Um, most of them don't know what their emissions profile is, don't know what their options are for how to change things, are sceptical about the extent to which they're actually part of the problem, um, and, you know, are generally a fairly, you know, as is everywhere around the world, a fairly conservative kind of culture. And so um, it's it's always been very difficult for us to be able to grapple with that because of the economic import of that of that sector and the nature of it. So let's then talk a bit, so that, that's the challenge, but let's talk a bit then also about the opportunities, because certainly from a UK perspective, and you talk about how our emissions have been falling gradually over the years, and we recently became the first major economy to legislate to be net zero by 2050, and that's looking yeah. at all um, greenhouse gases. And part of that in the UK has been businesses responding and looking at the opportunity in terms of the low carbon sector and, and investing lots in terms of their research mm. and development to take advantage of that. What, what are the opportunities in New Zealand? So we're about 10 years behind the UK, you know, like you've had your Climate Change Act for 10 years, people have been responding to it for that period of time and so some of those, some of that initial resistance uh, and then the subsequent investment and opportunities starting to get proven already, people are realising that actually the world isn't going to end. And so in some ways the hardest part is getting started. Um, I think that, you know, when it comes to what's, what's you, you know, if you think about what, what we're really good at, actually we are really good at agriculture, um, and we're already one of the most efficient producers of agricultural product per unit of production. So whilst our emissions have risen, actually they're incredibly efficient. Uh, and if we can then turn that into a, a volumetric reduction, then I think the brand and the value that comes associated with that can be really powerful. And I know, I mean, we have, there are some people who say, oh, you know, it's our responsibility to feed the world. We can't. We don't have enough land for that. But what we can do is help the rest of the world feed itself. And so I think some of the innovations um, and in terms of production and productivity in the agriculture sector are things that we ought to be exporting, not just the actual food itself. It's really interesting. And there's and there's real opportunity also, isn't it, in the agri-tech mm. space. And I've spent quite a lot of time at the, um, is it the Agricultural Research Centre in yeah. Palmerston North, you know, getting hugely interested yeah. all about, you know, livestock and when they fart and when they burp and how yeah. you can reduce the amount of methane produced. Yeah. Big um, um, glass boxes that they yeah. um, put animals yeah, yeah. in and then feed them different... Well, if you could crack that, yeah. if you could work out how you reduce that methane production, that's going to be applicable around the world and it's going to be huge in terms of a commercial... Oh, it'll be massive. I mean, when you consider... Uh, yes, we rely on cows a lot in our, um, our economy, but there's a lot of cows in the rest of the world yeah. too, like a lot. Uh, and so, yes, it is a problem that the whole rest of the world is facing and I, and I think that... If we can move quickly on that, there will be a massive advantage. So then moving, so we've been talking a lot about what you can do at government level and also how you try and get businesses to show leadership. 
Do you have thoughts on what we can all do individually in our day-to-day lives? I get asked that a lot. People keep saying, well, what's the one thing that I could do differently? Here in New Zealand, and, and it varies a little bit country to country, but in New Zealand, the single most effective thing that you could do is to work out how to um, get around differently. So uh, transport is our fastest growing uh, emissions sector. It's carbon dioxide, which of course lasts for thousands of years and horrendous. Um, and and uh, we keep buying in larger and less efficient vehicles. And actually, yeah. what we need to do is to um, you know start bending the curve on that. So if you can switch to an electric, if you've got that opportunity, uh, or even just a more efficient model than the one that you've got, if you can carpool, if you can, you know, cycle or walk or catch the bus or the train, uh, you know, and just kind of think about that, that will actually, for most families here in New Zealand, will make a a substantial difference. And tell me, there was, is there a proposal or has it gone through for an incentive scheme for people to switch to electric vehicles? Uh, well, there's a, a consultation document that's out there because um, uh, we like to do endless amounts of consultation before we make a decision. Um, and and uh, the idea here is that we're going to we're one of the only two countries in the OECD that don't have vehicle emission standards, um, and so we're going to bring in uh, vehicle emission standards for the first time, and then accompanying that in order to make it easier for people to buy more efficient uh, vehicles. We're going to introduce a fee on the less efficient vehicles, and that'll help to pay for a rebate on the more yeah. efficient vehicles. Yeah. yeah. So you help into, you help nudge the supply that's and right. demand. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it makes total sense. Yeah. yeah. People are hungry for it. I mean, yeah. we know that demand for EVs in New Zealand is outstripping supply, um, and you know the price per unit's coming down. People are realising some of their fears around range anxiety, or you know what happens if I run out of um, out of battery power. Uh, you know, those are starting to to fall by the wayside. Yeah. Moving on a bit, you you know it must have been such a, quite an adjustment to go from being um, in Parliament to then being actually in government. And I know you work incredibly long days, and you've got a huge amount on your plate. What do you do in terms of your own well-being and to look after your own resilience to not sort of just fall over with exhaustion? Well, I have a terrible lifestyle. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I, I, I um, run a bit and try, try and pay some attention to what I'm eating, but that's frankly all I've got the attention for at the moment. Yeah, but do you manage to carve out time when you don't do work, say on weekends? And... A wee bit. I mean, I do work the weekends because um, every minister gets a, a weekend bag um, and that takes roughly five to ten hours to work through depending on what's in it. Um, so, uh, but if I can, I'll try and take one day off on the yeah. weekend, although sometimes, depending on what's in the bag, I, I prefer to split it. Yeah, yeah, and um, and and then I suppose my other question is: politics is a you know, it's there's so much opportunity there, and it's very exciting, and you feel like you're doing work that really matters. But it's probably also one of the professions where you come into most criticism. You know, you've got these great intentions, huge amount you're trying to do, uh, but actually, you rarely get positive feedback from the public. It's more being a focus of, of criticism. Yeah. How do you cope with that? Well, it's a funny thing. Um, I think I don't find myself affected by most of it. Uh, You know, if if someone's having a go at you, generally that says more about them than it does about you. Um, Most people who are wanting to have a go about a policy issue... It's not personal, right? So, you, and and actually, often when you're talking it through and having a reasoned conversation with them, that, that's kind of fine. Um, uh, but uh, people who just kind of lay into you, well, you know, there's, you just tend to write that off to tell you the truth, because yeah. yeah, it's yeah. it's just 
um, yeah, like I say, that's sort of, uh, if, if, they, if that's what makes them happy, then yeah. they can knock themselves out. It's all about insulating yourself, isn't it, and deciding what you're going to what you're going to what you're going to allow to upset you yeah. and yeah and so in new zealand there's this incredibly open political culture it's very easy to go into the beehive it's very easy to go into parliament um and you know you walk along lampton quay and you're constantly bumping into ministers and mps yeah. and things like that and i think that's a, a wonderful thing that hasn't changed after the christchurch attacks but also you seem to have not changed after you had that awful encounter in the botanical garden you can't i think yeah. and the guy that punched me is a bit of a random um, event he's kind of clearly got issues and the vast majority of people in the world aren't like that so you just kind of got to carry on with yeah. things really absolutely yeah. and, and keep New Zealand's political culture yeah as it is yeah. yeah I mean I think you know I know that there are people who are starting to think through do we need to revise the way that we do security um, both on campus and off campus yeah. probably actually more off campus than on because um, you know, that's reasonably good on campus, but it's when you when you are off, you know, meandering down the street looking for a sandwich uh, that uh, kind of anything can happen. But, um, I, you know, for the most part, I just think that those things are very few far and far between. Yeah. And do you think that the that either the scale of New Zealand, the fact that it's relatively small compared with lots of other places, and the fact that you have MMP, do you think that affects the political culture and the way people interact? Um, being small definitely yeah. is. It's like you know when you go to a small town and everyone on the street says hello and you you're wondering what what's going on <laughs> before returning to your big yeah. city where no yeah. one says hello. First time I came to New Zealand, I remember going into a shop and um, so I was saying, so what are you doing here and how long are you going to be here yeah. and what's your boyfriend do? And yeah. I was like, you know, I was a sort of unfriendly London bugger going, why yeah. do you want to know? And then yeah. you relax into it, don't yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure that I'm sure that that's had an effect. And and I guess one one of the things, I mean, the population of New Zealand has doubled in my lifetime. Uh, so you know, there will be a point, I guess, where well, in fact, there already has, you know, that that effect kind of wears off over time. The the other thing, what was the second part of your question about? Oh, about MMP. Yeah. That definitely has changed our political culture. So um, I was I active in the campaign for electoral reform back yeah. in the early nineties, uh, when our parliament was, uh, shall we say, not nearly as diverse as it is now, and any dimension that you can imagine um, and so that's done wonders for it but it has also you know that the kind of ha having to form coalitions because um, we don't you know we don't have an upper house so there's no kind of break on on parliament um, having MMP is a bit of a break it slows things down because you've got to negotiate between your coalition you can't just push things through on the numbers uh, and so that's that's definitely had an effect and it's kind of interesting you know the Green Party uh, holds consensus to be a really high yes. value yeah. um, which is tremendously messy and inefficient but usually more robust in the long run in terms of the stability of a decision to hold. The government that we're a part of now has an enforced consensus because you actually can't do anything without the consent of both yeah. of the other yeah. coalition yes. parties which means you have to negotiate and and actually whilst that can be a pain in the neck and slow government business down um, I actually really value it because usually you get a a better outcome not always sometimes things get watered down to sort of lowest common denominator but usually you're taking on a, on um, feedback that 
says, well, actually, there is a constituency here that you hadn't thought of. What are you going to do to manage that? Yeah, precisely. Yeah, that's right. And then, and then, as you say, then you presumably then get a more sustainable approach or a sustainable yeah. solution that endures, and that's particularly important when you have three-year or potentially three-year terms. You have yeah. elections every three years yeah. anyway. Yeah. And I suppose that then brings us back to the Zero Carbon Act, doesn't it, and the importance of a bipartisan approach yeah. to zero carbon so that no matter which government you have in power, that commitment remains. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if we're going to get it, but we're certainly trying very hard to, to bring the opposition along. Um, and uh, I know that, you know, they haven't quite worked out where they're going to land on it yet. Mm. They're probably waiting for the select committee to see what changes it proposes. Um, I, I think, you know, if we don't get it, that isn't the end of the world, of course, because the history of New Zealand often is that, you know, one government will come in and introduce a reform, the opposition of the day will criticise it heavily and perhaps even say that they're going to unwind it. And then when things change, actually, it's sort of bedded in and they, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and they might tweak it and mess with it a little bit, but they tend to leave the infrastructure in place. So tell me, will you be going to the next um, UN climate change conference in December? Uh, almost certainly. And will you be flying or will you be, go will you be doing a Greta Thunberg <laughs> and going by boat? No, if I was to do that, I'd probably have to set off now <laughs> exactly. um, in order to get there on time. So, uh, so no, I will be flying, but I will also be offsetting my emissions for the flight. Excellent. Brilliant. Thanks very much, James. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks for having me on the show. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review as it helps others find us. And remember, you can subscribe to us by searching for Tea with the High Commission on iTunes or Spotify. Thank you. Kakiti anō.